1: You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and with the sunshine upon us and the opportunity for physical exercise beckoning with its finger in this week's show, my guest nearly persuaded me to go for a jog. This is the healthy way to see secret London. And, well, for a show about jogging, this episode contains a surprising amount of material about zombies and death. Before we head out, a couple of bits I've been meaning to share with you for ages in response to various shows. Going back to our episode on the East End French, uh, Harry Kidd says, I'm a weekly follower of your podcast, using it to find places and events to see during my forthcoming visits to London. I found the East End French podcast extremely interesting. Mention was made that the Huguenots' major emigration was in the 1690s, but they weren't the first. Reading Samuel Pepys' diary, you learn that his wife, Elizabeth Saint-Michel, was." Well- Huguenot, and her parents and brother Balty had been in London for some time. I believe her father, like Peeps, was a tailor. He really gets everywhere, doesn't he? Frankel Trimmings came up in uh, one of our podcasts. And you remember, that's the very strangely shaped building in Bethnal Green. ADGB Disgust tells us that uh, it's a former cinema opened in 1913 as Sharp's Picture House and remodelled in the 30s. It remained a cinema until 1964. Then it became a bingo hall, and that was through till 1990. Since then, it's been the fabric warehouse it is today. This year, A D G B says it will follow the sad, inevitable fate of nice old buildings in East London. It's becoming, yes, you've guessed it, flats, but at least the frontage is being retained and it's not becoming ugly, boring, glass-fronted boxes. Finally, Larry Borges of National Geographic fame, who's responding to Look Up London episode when we were talking about the insignia that banks chose. And we passed a bank that used squirrels. He says, not basing this on any research, but it seems to me that the reason that many early banks chose ferocious symbols instead of, for example, squirrels, is that early banks were most likely very tenuous affairs and they wanted to get the point across that they would aggressively protect your money from all comers. I should say as well, by the way, that Larry was the brains behind our excursion to Lourdes, and he's thought of a couple of other excellent suggestions that we're following up, thanks to all three of our correspondents. OK, running shoes on, let's get some exercise.
0: Hey baby, let me take you down, so we'll play some strange sights and the sound You ain't never seen the light before, just a song's through, no problem
1: Hello, hello, listener, from the churchyard of a church that I am told is St Mary's. And it's on St Mary Axe. And we are in the shadow of the cheese grater. Just around the corner is the Gherkin. And in front of me, two slightly smaller structures Amy Coates and Vanessa Kane. Hello.
2: Hello. Hello.
1: Now, we can't tell anybody what we're doing here.
2: It's a big secret.
1: Yes, Secret London runs.
2: That's right.
3: About
1: to become less secret. Um, What is the premise of Secret London Runs?
3: We are a running tour company. We do running tours and events.
1: This is genius. Ah, okay. I instantly understand you. So in order to pack more people in on your tours, you do them faster and you make everyone run?
3: (laughs) Not quite, no. We like to think of uh, the running tour as a way of getting people to see the side of London with the joy of their own endorphins.
1: That sounds really dodgy. (laughs) no.
3: It it could be. No, um, we combine jogging with sightseeing, so sight jogging. And uh, it's getting pretty big all around the world. There's sight jogging companies in in most cities, but there's not really that much up and running in London. We decided. (laughs) (laughs) We decided to get in on it, because um, Vanessa and I uh, have always loved running and history, so what better pair to set up a sight jogging company?
1: I've got a big question mark in my mind about the term sight jogging. Because sightseeing, you see the sights. Sight you jogging, you don't...
3: You jog a little bit and then have a stop and uh, and then we'll explain a, one of the really cool stories about one of the sites that we're at. And when you jog, you mean it means you can cover more ground um, than you would on a walking tour and you can, of course, go down those cool, crooked London alleys and, and streets that you wouldn't see if you were on a bike tour or a bus tour. So it's just the best of all worlds.
1: I'm going to be exploring virtually because there's no way I'm trying to record this whilst jogging with you that didn't even cross my mind as an option for this interview by the way <laughs> how would
3: you do it <laughs> <laughs> did, you,
1: did you consider that as a possibility by the way am I the only one not to have thought of that as an idea for this
2: Uh, We hoped you might.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry to dash your hopes. Uh, Maybe next time. Maybe not. We're going to be remaining entirely stationary. Uh, But we'll dig into some of the places that you go to. What what are the practicalities, though, of doing your tours in this way? I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the necessary health requirements of the attendees.
2: Well, I think we make it so that... Anyone can do it, really. So we have power walking options. And actually, I broke my leg just after setting up this company, which was a bit tricky.
1: Yeah, seriously.
2: Yeah. Um, How did
1: you break your leg?
2: At the office Christmas party. It wasn't very clever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I've got to know more.
2: Um, I'd had a bad day. and.
1: (laughs) 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 What, before you broke your leg?
2: Before I broke my leg it was only about nine o'clock and I remember saying to people it's short and sharp tonight guys and um, then on my way getting into a taxi I fell off my heel and it just snapped down a curb and that was that on the Uh, way home as well yeah I'd already decided that it was time to go
1: I need to get my head around this then. So you're doing another job at this point. You've, you've kind of already set up Secret London Runs. Yes, exactly. What was the idea then that you're going to depart your day job?
2: Well, we both just have actually, haven't we?
3: Oh,
1: really? Yeah. What have you departed?
2: Well, I'm uh, I'm head of copy in a advertising agency. And I head up a marketing team in a publishing company.
1: And site jogging is what you came up with. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> We've both been working in
3: our fields for you know, five or six years now and uh well last year we we launched secret under runs and it's just gone so well more than we could have hoped so uh, every time we start working on it it doesn't feel like work so um we decided to give it a proper go and that's why a couple of months a month ago we had
2: in our notices and we've gone full on well it was getting to the point where we both worked really hard in our jobs and then we were also working really hard on Secret London Run so I mean the thing that's been taking up most of our time is that we are doing lots of events um, which are like murder mystery events so we have to learn all the history of that area and time period then kind of write a murder mystery book and then work out how, during a run, you could, you could um, meet meet suspects and witnesses and discover the, who the murderer is.
1: So you've got th- three businesses in one.
2: No, that's all part of the London. No, Murphs. I
1: understand that. But you've got the murder mystery thing, which, for some people, that would be enough. And, <laughs> and the runs. Yeah. And the history guided tours. All was one thing. Yeah. Why on earth are you taking on so much?
3: <laughs> well, it came hand in hand really. Um, we had a launch event, um, for, of course, when when we first started, and it just it just went so well that um, we decided to do events as a more regular thing, um, and uh, one drives the other really. But having events um, is so easily. Publicised in all the kind of London listing guides that it drives people to our website, and it drives um, and we get loads of TripAdvisor reviews. We're number twenty out of one hundred twenty-five now. Twenty-five now, yeah, as a recency thing. Um, out of one hundred sixty-one things to do, outdoor things to do in TripAdvisor, and uh, that's mostly thanks to reviews we've got. I'd say eighty percent from our events so it brings
2: in the traffic for
3: us for the tours
2: and I think what we realised when we started doing the tours and testing them out on our friends was that everybody spends all their time in London and they just don't notice anything and so we realised that actually possibly our bigger market was Londoners rather than just tourists and that by making it into a fun fitness challenge rather than just a tour where there are loads of them then we were tapping into something quite unique that whole idea of tours being
3: for old people and tourists we want to make that a thing of the past you know and um get people to realize the history that lies under their feet and they would never they've never otherwise know about
1: should we go on a virtual tour yeah let's do a tour
2: okay Okay.
1: Uh, but i do mean virtual Right. (laughs) (laughs) you were not getting me running i'm going to blame it on the very delicate equipment i've got here
2: so this was our first tour that we launched um and it was because we were really struck quite like here really where there's a big building like the gherkin and then our old building like st mary's church the shard is this sort of beacon of luxury but actually the history of the area is so sordid um it's anything but luxury so we decided that we'd run a tour about the gentrification of the area um and we called it in the shadow of the shard so we start off
1: well borough market
2: no bridge
1: Bridge. Bridge,
2: the north side so from
3: there you get a really beautiful view of of the shard which which could be seen like vanessa said as a kind of Nair in the coffin of what southern and Bermondsey used to be like in a way um, because running from the north to the south for throughout the whole of the Middle Ages up until the 19th century was kind of making this route from relative luxury down to kind of the the things that the the north of the city didn't want the unwanted activities the brothels the um, unlicensed theaters the
1: kind joggers the Well. <laughs>
3: These days, <laughs> not sure how. I think jogging only became fashionable in the
1: fifties, really. Wasn't yeah, you wouldn't jog in a rough, would you? Too much wind resistance.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, now, I, I should just establish, though, as you uh, imparting this historical context, are you doing so over your shoulder as you're jogging?
3: Oh, it depends, really. I mean, if we really have to judge on on our on our customers and if. I had a lady who was on, it was her 62nd birthday and, and it was she, her present to herself for her yeah, birthday, it was yeah. so nice and she was, she could run and talk and, and stuff and that was absolutely fine and on the other hand I've had you know, a group of girls in their early 20s and we needed to stop, have a good stop, catch their breath and that was great because I could you know, talk to my heart's content about the different stops and stories that, on our way it's just a kind of a judgment thing. I think everyone's grateful for a little bit of a stop, and, uh, and that way you can have a really good look. And sometimes it's tricky um, getting around groups of people along the South Bank, which is where we, we go along, and the Southwark's pleasure gardens in past years. And so there are lots of people around there near the anchor, you know, enjoying, enjoying the view in the evening. So
2: we've looked at the shard now, and now we're going to make that crossing over into Dirty Southwark. As we go over, we're running now. Um, this is nice, so we're we're still all running.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's on the spot, I'm not doing this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes uh,
3: there's a we have to stop at the traffic light to wait for it to go, and then I'll just tell people a little bit about about Bishop, Bishop. The John Fisher. Yeah, yeah. 1535, um, and that around that kind of time, they used to really make an example of the criminals and um, traitors and traitors to to the throne and other sort, all sorts of bad behavior so they would chop off people's when they beheaded people they would put them on spikes on the south end of london bridge um, to scare people away and this kind of this macabre scene attracted crowds of people which added to the already thick heavy traffic on london bridge it was the only way to cross from the north and south of the river for many years so bishop john
2: fisher do you want to explain the tale of so he was beheaded for treason, um, and when he was... What, what did he do? Um, he refused to acknowledge Henry VIII as the head of the Church of England.
1: Oh <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a good move, isn't it?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so he was there on a spike, um, and obviously most of the heads got got pretty manky by the end of their time there. But John Fisher got fresher and fresher every day to the point that he looked even even nicer than when he was alive.
1: Maybe he really didn't look very nice when he was alive.
2: <laughs> or, or maybe these are myths. But apparently it attracted so much attention that London Bridge was um, was in gridlock because of all the traffic coming over to look at John Fisher's head. One of the locals had to just pop his head in the Thames when no-one was looking so that service could uh, (laughs) resume.
1: Uh, Didn't they do the same thing with David Blaine when he was doing his box stunt by Tower Bridge? I'm I'm pretty sure somebody tried to knock him into the Thames. (laughs) Anyway, that need not concern us right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Over over the bridge we go.
2: So So now we're crossing the road, the traffic light's done, through Borough Market, along to the Medieval Palace.
1: How many people have you got jogging behind you at this point?
3: Oh, it depends. I mean, up to 10... We've had in before, but generally it's a one or two or three people. That's the popular kind of number.
1: Because people get a little bit unreasonable when they see when when they get disturbed, when they get flummoxed, don't they? Mm. I could imagine a number of joggers bearing down on them could produce some reactions.
3: Well, no, I mean the, one of the things we say that outright is you know be respectful of people. It gets busy in in these bits. We purposely try and pick a route that um, our tours are you know a bit quieter and those times of of
2: day. So we do promise people on the tours that. It is busy for a little bit and please be patient yeah. because we're going to be just going up the nooks and crannies after a while. So, but I think it's common, um, a lot of joggers who like running the city like running
3: the city but get annoyed with the tourists and, and the people and crowds and that's not really a good way of going about things. So we, we just try and make sure we're quite respectful and, and don't go
2: too close to people's personal space and things.
1: Uh, so we were at Three Borough Market.
2: And we're at Winchester Palace, which was kind of the reason for a long time that Southwark was as it is. So have you seen Winchester Palace?
1: What's left of it, yes.
2: Yeah. One, uh.
1: one sort of end wall, really, isn't it?
2: Mm. Um, so the Bishop of Winchester used to have his summer residence there, and he was one of the richest bishops because of this residence. And so Southwark was the liberty of the clink at the time. It meant that it was outside of the jurisdiction of the city. So it meant that things that were, that were illegal in the city of London were permitted in and regulated in Southwark, in the liberty of the clink. So the bishop was the guy that ruled over it, and he allowed prostitution to take place, and that was, like, a huge source of income for him. So there were 39 regulations about the prostitution there. So some of them were kind of quite progressive in that they were trying to protect the women, so trying to protect them from the stew-holders from taking advantage of them.
1: Stew-holders?
2: Uh, brothel. So oh, right, okay. The, the brothel-owners. So and then there were others that would um, illegalized the prostitutes having sex for love. So if it wasn't for money, then so having sex could lo- for love could get you dipped in the uh, was it the ducking stool? Yeah, raw sewage.
1: That's yeah. that's an, that's a, an amazing uh, thought crime. I've never heard of that. Before.
2: Yeah, it's horrendous. You should read this. Thirty nine. Uh, regulations, lots of them were put together because when lots of the soldiers started coming back from the Crusades, they were bringing back with them lots of lots of diseases, and so lots of them were to protect people from that, so all the prostitutes had to have a three monthly check up and if they were found having sex with a disease then they'd be banished from the liberty of the clink it's a mad set of rules we kind of became so fascinated by the bishop of winchester and his role over the liberty of the clink that in our launch event we had a murder mystery called who killed the bishop of winchester so we had we had quite a lineup because of all of the all of the things that he allowed and all of the people he would have upset by doing exactly. so it's really tragic and Sex work was considered a necessary evil back in those times. It's something
3: we find it so hard to, to consider, even understand now, but um, to prevent
2: men harassing good women. Yeah, know? so the Catholic idea in, in that time well I've, I've read that it was the Catholic idea anyway was that Southwark's brothels were kind of a necessary evil the men of the city were going to, were going to need to um, express their urges and so better to do it on a, on a Southwark whore than on a good woman of the city so.
1: Yes I imagine it was the, the men who were saying that
2: one would have thought wouldn't
1: yes. it, it seems difficult to imagine you imparting all of this whilst on the move but but on the <laughs> it's move we are It would
2: be a stop just outside the what remains of the Winchester palace and the, the the old clink prison and, and then it, off we run along the south bank which would have been lined with brothels up until mm-hmm. the 1600s so the ferryman would have made an absolute killing transporting
3: men from the city over to the south the river other said early uh, south's pleasure gardens to spend a night there, and uh, yeah, it would have been. They would have made a rip-roaring trade.
2: So along we run down to the Crossbones Graveyard.
0: Ah,
1: yes. Crossrail has well sealed it off, actually.
2: Yeah, exactly. And now there's a, a lovely garden there for the friends of the Crossbones Graveyard.
1: And the ribbons flapping from the fencing there. Yeah. Well, we've we've talked a little bit about that in previous episodes. So let's keep running.
2: All right. Well, uh,
3: so then we go down Red Cross Way which back in the Middle Ages would have been
2: one of the dangerous streets in London to run down. Um, and, now and into the 1800s, really, that was when it was horrendous. So do, we,
1: do we know why it's called Red Cross? No. Ah, intriguing.
2: Do you? No.
1: Um, oh, but I know somebody who does. The listener, can you help? I wonder if it's some reference to death or some blood, I don't know. So is the Catholic Cross red? The English Cross is red.
2: Mm, I'm not sure. But the, the Crossbones graveyard by the end was a plague pit and and that was around the 1800s when it closed. And so as you run up it, then you would just imagine just all this disease coming out all of the doors. And the idea of giving any kind of help to the poor was quite alien um, until very late on into the like 1880s and 1890s, really. Um, so when then we run past... Red Cross Gardens. Yeah, where um, Octavia Hill, who founded the National Trust,
3: was a really progressive figure, um, and she she realised that creating an open space um, within these kind of slum areas, really um, really poverty-stricken areas, would give people a kind of sitting room for, for the tired, the tired, and um, people who just needed a rest. Really, and that's what she did, and that was um, that's what Red Cross Gardens is, and there's a blue plaque for her there and it really opened up the area
2: and started to give people, to to break it up and make it less dangerous. And it's still beautiful today. And then we run on uh, Mint Street and along to Lance Street. Have we
1: lost any runners yet?
2: No, they're all still going along. <laughs> None
1: of them starting to weave and hold their chest.
2: <laughs> no, no, everyone's really happy and just you know, holding on to our every word really. That
1: podcast presenter at the back's looking a bit robust. Yeah, he's
2: fine, he's okay. fine, he can do it. There's a stop coming up really soon. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have heard that there's a geocache on Red Cross
3: Way, so I did lose one runner one time who had to go and find it. What right is there. a
1: geocache?
3: Oh, we've got a blog about it on Sorry, our
1: website. Sorry, a, a question from the 19th century here. What is a geocache?
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's well I, don't, I can't go into too much it's quite a secretive thing it's, it's, uh, people have it as a hobby there are geocaches based around the whole world really and loads in London and um, it's kind of like a tiny cache where you have to go and find it some, some of them have little trinkets in them tiny trinkets um, and you record, you log that you've been
1: there where, is this a virtual thing or an actual like it's an Easter egg hunt
2: Yeah, it's like, so you log it virtually mm.
1: so you, what, you're digging it up and go oh there's a little plastic gnome in there
2: yeah, yeah, it's that kind yeah. of thing.
1: Right. It's
0: in like yeah. little
2: boxes or hidden away, yeah. um, and it encourages people
3: to get out, get out, and have a look around their space. Kind of what we're like we're doing, really. Yeah, um, and family thing as well.
1: There's, there's something a little surreal about that, isn't there? That you, it feels like a very 21st century thing that you're juggling along with a group of people, and one of them has to duck out because they're on uh, in the middle of an <laughs> Easter egg hunt at the same time. <laughs>
2: I think it's lovely.
1: (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile,
2: meanwhile, we found the plaque for Charles Dickens, who lived on Lant Street. So when we're there, we say, "We say this is where Charles Dickens lived, lived,
3: (laughs) (laughs) and had one." And he wrote that he had the. Miserable time, time of,
2: his of, his life. of his life. He lived there when he was um, up to the age of about twelve. When he was twelve, for eight months.
1: What was so awful about that?
2: Well, what we yeah. say there <laughs> is, we're going to tell you at the next stop. <laughs> <laughs> then we run on to the next stop.
3: I'm
1: all expectation.
2: <laughs> and we run
3: along a little alleyway that you would never really know, very unsuspecting. And what's down there is what remains of the Marshalsea prison. A huge wall with the gardens inside which a very nice pleasant place to be but back in the 18th century it would have been far from pleasant it was one of the biggest prisons in south london south of the river and uh, it was one of five within a mile radius of that spot it was right in in the middle of a, a very deprived area and it was it was a rough place to be
2: so in 1812 they were made to make their owner's money
1: wasn't dickens's father a debtor
2: so that was why dickens lived on lance street around the corner because the rest of his family bar his sister were all imprisoned in the debtor's jail for 10 months i think i said eight months before but it was 10 right um, so he had a debt with a baker and that meant that he was inside the prison for for 10 months um, so they'd make it um, so that the people that had enough money to live would be able to spend their money in taverns um, and on different things inside the jail. And you were really desperate to try to stop going over into the side where you were begging for your, begging for your meals. There's a wonderful book called The Devil in the March LC, um and
3: it just it's a beautiful piece of historic fiction and just absolutely brings to life what life would have been like in that prison, horrendous on both sides of the wall, but particularly horrendous on that side of the wall.
1: What have you come away from that book with, in terms of detail?
3: Bad dreams. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it was quite a normal sight back then for somebody um, to, in in the city, wherever else in London, suddenly be shackled up, put in chains, and dragged, put on a ferry over down to the Marshalsea, and um, that's kind of the start of the book, really. And then it goes on to. Talk about the the tavern um, where they could drink some really weak, horrible ale if they wanted to, and the, and the candles were made of um, pig fat and it stunk. And um, there's a scene where he doesn't understand why nobody's sitting next to the only window in the tavern. You know, it's a, there's a balcony there, great, and he goes and looks, and he looks over the other side of the wall, and there's people walking around like zombies, just skeletal figures a couple out laid in the sunshine dead and uh, and that's what life was like on the other side of the wall
1: and this is 150 odd years ago
2: yeah so as soon as you a bit
1: more
2: than that but... yeah un... 200 years yeah. ago so as soon as you could no longer benefit financially the people that owned it you were just shoved in like a dog the on the other side of the wall one of my
3: favourite things about that book is how they, how he describes knowledge as currency back then. So you, if you could, if you had a tip off for somebody, then you might be able to get a favour back from them. And it was usually the, the, keeper of the keys and the guards who you'd be able to, you know, send letters or get a few cigarettes.
1: Just on that idea of information, because we've sort of been through and come out the other side of an information age, haven't we? In the probably the eighties, nineties, and information's kind of free now, you now with the internet. Anything you could possibly want to know, you can know instantly. So it struck me that what you're doing here is finding a new and interesting way to dress up knowledge, really, you know, a different um, delivery mechanism.
3: Not necessarily dress up. But, no, um, dress up was um, an unfair term. <laughs> but get people to f- really understand it. And people, I think the term narrative is really overused in creative industries these days, but there's a reason for that. And people can... You can't ever know what it was like, but you can kind of get a feel for it if you... Immerse yourself in that history. And London is just a fascinating place because that history is there on the streets for you to see and to experience.
2: And what, what I love doing. and hate about it is that the more you learn about it, the more you realise you don't know. Okay. So it means that there's years' worth of fun, yeah. but it means that it's not, it's not something that we're going to nail overnight. So we run to Horsemonger Lane Jail,
3: um, which was also the site of um, executions. So back in the day, they would have they would have drawn crowds of up to twenty thousand people to come and watch the executions. And um, as you know, they would have been a, it would have been a huge public party. Basically, there would have been gestures and music and drinking and rowdiness to watch people be hanged. And uh, do you know what that? Uh, communal feeling the next day might have been like, what might have been um, like when the whole village was, was suffering after a day of festivities the previous day. Can you think of a word for that?
1: Oh, yes, hanged over.
3: Exactly. So that's <laughs> where our word for hungover comes from.
1: Oh, very interesting. Mm. Um, Is that official?
3: Yeah, that's how, where hungover that comes from. Oh, woof well, many many of our trips down the rabbit hole as it were when when we're researching our tours and events it's so easy to just get lost in history and and wikipedia pages and books and um so i can't say where i picked it up from but somewhere
1: so you two uh, i've got an image of you on a sunday afternoon in the process of setting up secret london runs uh, leafing through many an encyclopedia you two go way back don't you
2: yeah, we met on our first day at university, and we sort of fell in love. Ever
3: since, no. yeah, we actually lived next door to each other, <laughs> Where they—they just a huge coincidence
2: because no. we're coats and cane. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which by the way is a good double act name.
2: It is, isn't yeah, it? Right, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe we'll one day.
1: But <laughs> well, maybe already, just with a different name.
3: Huh? <laughs> and can I just correct you? Said um, on a Sunday afternoon, delving through books. It's more like. Monday at 2 a.m., Tuesday at uh, 6 a.m. This, as Vanessa mentioned earlier, has is, is been a huge lot of work, and one of the best things about it is that um, you know our relationship as friends as well as business partners has just developed and changed and become something really lovely. So, um, lovelier, um, lovelier.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's too much sick of fancy going on now. <laughs>
3: starting
1: to feel nauseous. Sorry.
2: There's a bucket over there.
1: <laughs> uh, meanwhile, right. uh, having just executed some people.
3: Yes. Well, you can tell about a couple of the people who were executed on this. I, um, this got, I can't remember. Oh, no. I, <laughs> right. so, w- w- whisper
1: into a microphone. <laughs>
2: No, no, it's, it's
1: the tour that I that I do. So, um, I saying,
2: but it's just I, I haven't, just haven't really wa- been able to do a tour since breaking my leg. No, I wanted to ask
1: about that. So you you just set the company up? Hey, let's both run running tours.
2: Yeah, and then I you
1: just, go. No, I won't do that. And I thank just you.
2: started to do this tour, um, and I love it. So, so what
1: do you do? Are you sitting in there like a wheelbarrow being pushed by you?
2: We no. do. We did do that, didn't well, we? we have,
3: <laughs> when, when, <laughs> when Vanessa's leg was broken. We wanted to
2: practice a tour, so um, I had to wheel Vanessa around the, the tour while she... In a wheelchair, not a wheelbarrow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Willsfreedom.com wheel, is like, borrow a, borrow a wheelchair, and they're amazing.
1: But did you, did you not think that this was a major hole in your plan? Vanessa's
2: not like that <laughs> I wrote to quite a few disabled meetup groups and asked them if they'd like to come on a wheelchair tour and Amy would push me and uh, we could all go but they weren't very keen and they were like it's the middle of winter like we don't want to our, our, our people don't want to go out in the cold and in hindsight we probably needed special licenses and things yeah there, so, um... and and as well when we did do the tour so we we did it to, to practice with some friends that we'd met on Twitter and Amy was yanking me up the curbs and wheeling me along the road. So In the Shadow of the Shard is not disabled-friendly, we realised on that one.
1: Well, not that disability.
2: (laughs) (laughs) For our uh, Christmas party, on the other hand, uh, so
3: this was shortly after Vanessa... um, Broke her leg. There was not even the not even talk of, of cancelling it. Instead, I wheeled Vanessa from her house in South London up to the pub where we had our Christmas event, and uh, and off
2: we went. I crawled up the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> this was about two weeks after breaking my leg, so I crawled up the stairs. And at that event, all we had to do was just register the runners, give them their brief, and then they set off to do a challenge where they found the statues in um, in the area. So it was fine. It was definitely um, broken-leg friendly, that one. <laughs> uh,
1: who have we executed down at... Horse- <laughs> Sorry, what was it called, <laughs> <laughs> horse Lane? Well, there's
2: a couple of um, interesting executions there. I mean, uh, the, the
3: one that drew the biggest crowd was Edward Marcus Despard. Um, that was 1803, and he was the last man in British history to be sentenced, hanged, drawn and courted. Um, and he was a Protestant Irishman found guilty of high treason. Um, and then another story which got the nickname of the Bermondsey Horror was Mary Manning and her husband who were hung for... Hanged. Hanged, <laughs> hanged for them. I'm a, I'm a writer. <laughs> <laughs> you were right. <laughs> yes, good, good correction. Uh, for the, so they, they both murdered her lover, Patrick O'Connor. And so, yeah, as I say, it got the name of um, the Bermondsey Horror.
2: And they were the first married couple to be executed together in 150 years. Oh, that's nice. Lovely. They're romantic. In a <laughs> <laughs> a very special way. <laughs> and then
3: we go on to. And
1: wait minute, sorry, what were the dates of these?
3: So that was 1803 um, for Edward Ma- Edward Marcus Despard and uh, 1849 Mary Manning and her husband. Yeah, so alar- not,
1: alarming re- recently, recent yeah.
3: history. Yeah, that, yeah, we talk- and it was by no means the most heavily used uh, execution site. Up in um, Marble Arch, which was the Tyburn tree, it was a, a gallows that could house 28 people all to be executed at once and that was probably the biggest execution site and that features in one of our other tours um the riches royals and rumors tour which is the other side of which lets people experience and explore the other side of the buckingham palace westminster mayfair area so you know we while i'm doing the tour i often see groups of Tourists and tour guys looking at, um, you know, Buckingham Palace and how many rooms it has, and how often they have to cut the grass in St James's Park. But this is our tours are very different from that. It's the real, bit grimier history of the areas.
1: Uh, yeah, that's an appalling thing to imagine, isn't it? Twenty eight people being dispatched. Mm, that's 24. industrial.
3: Yeah, twenty four. Yeah, industrial scale. And I mean, the people who were to be hanged were uh, almost hanged? celebrities. Um, <laughs> people to be hanged were seen as almost celebrities back then. I mean, they were notorious, um, for some of them. And so people would line the streets all the way from the Old Bailey up to Tyburn, giving them ale and, and bread and cake along the way. Um, as I say, it was a, it was a hanging parade. And, and they got to the point where... Um, so the bodies were promised to anatomists who would of course use, the, use them for their own research but the families didn't like this very much so when the bodies were cut down and the anatomists and medical students would rush to try and grab a, a hand or a, a leg the, the families would come out and, and fight with them and it would just be a huge scene so hanging parades were banned in the mid-19th century. If you think about it um, from the perspective of how people felt about the royal family. Um, It wasn't always so... uh, I mean, of course, nowadays, everyone has got their own opinion about the royal family. Um, But protests um, against the decisions of the government and the royal family were not a a new thing. That's been going on for years and centuries and centuries, of course. So the people who didn't agree with government and the royals and, and the wealthier people... Were themselves heroes of their own subcultures. So, yeah, it's not—it's not, it's not like everyone thought they were doing wrong. In fact, on the contrary, I think um, it was widely acknowledged that there was a lot of crookedness within the police and, um, of course, the bishops. You—you um,
1: you, you just gestured at Vanessa there when you said the bishops. Well, Is there something I don't know?
2: <laughs> I am a bishop. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I should really have mentioned that in the, well, in the intro, shouldn't I?
2: We? <laughs> we,
3: uh, we, for our launch event, um, one of the um, the best actors that we had were Vanessa's own parents.
1: One of the best actors you had? Uh,
3: sorry, the,
2: the best pair <laughs> of actors we had.
1: <laughs> so Vanessa... Um, I imagine them playing one character, you know, like a pantomime horse or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Next time, <laughs> Goliath or something. Yeah, get it. No, um, no. I'll let Vanessa tell you. It was, uh... Oh, they dressed up as the Archbishop of Canterbury and um, <laughs> and his favourite nun because my mum wanted a <laughs> part, even though, but she wanted to stand with my dad, so she was a nun. That's
1: immediately invoking scandal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so he was uh, William Warham, and um, William Warham he kind of wore black and then just a brown bit of fur around him. I sent my dad a picture, and I asked him if he'd got something similar. And please, um,
1: please say no, Dad. Please say no. Wow!
2: Well, oh, dad dear. said, "Dad <laughs> said I'll see what I can do." He went away, and he arrived in this really ornamental bishop's dress so it was cream and golden with a blue cross he'd made a big hat (laughs) that kept blowing off and all the runners had to go into the road to get it
1: (laughs) (laughs) this was clearly the moment he'd been waiting for a long time
2: he was amazing yeah and and my mum was a nun and together they were just this double act that everyone came back and were like who were the bishop and the nun they were amazing What, Um, what
1: are your parents professions
2: they're both retired
1: um, There's too much time
2: on the hands, really. <laughs> my dad plays croquet and tennis and badminton a lot. And um, and my mum actually spends a lot of time, well they both do spend a lot of time with the church, which is how they managed to get such fantastic outfits. Well actually your mum hired it from the costume shop, didn't yes, she? It's it did. a non outfit. And um, didn't they have a
3: special party going on the same day when they went to hire the outfits? <laughs> they thought that
2: my mum were off to a Tarts and Vickers party. <laughs>
3: <laughs> or the Tarts and Vickers party that was happening in Wellingborough on, on that evening.
1: Well, I don't know what I expected when I met up with you, but uh, <laughs> we've gone way off pace. <laughs> Do
2: you want us to finish the virtual forum yeah, in we one ought sentence? Yeah, or? Yeah.
1: No, no, no that's, not uh, one sentence. Well, how many sentences would it normally take? <laughs>
2: what? <laughs> if we keep going <laughs> like this. <laughs> should we talk about the the, the, the... thing that Burmese was really
1: popular for? Yeah, so. So,
2: so then we pop into Bermondsey, and just to summarize we point out a few things on the way which say that Bermondsey was the center of leather for hundreds of years. And so leather was like quite a dirty a dirty trade because it was made from urine and feces um and charles dickens described it as
1: really (laughs) and
3: made
2: from (laughs) charles dickens (laughs) human leather i don't know what the human tissue
3: authority would say about that but i've actually got a um i've got a an extract from um, charles dickens jr's book which really lovelily sums up delightfully sums up (laughs) what life would have been like um in the slums in Bermondsey Um, do you mind if I, we we read this on the tour so, um, and people usually like this bit So um, he says, the neighbourhood in which it, and this is the the leather exchange um, the neighbourhood in which it stands is devoted entirely to thinners and tanners and the air reeks with evil smells, the population is peculiar and it is a sight at 12 o'clock to see the men pouring out from all the works Their clothes are marked with many stains. Their trousers are discoloured by tan. Some have apron and gaiters of raw hide, and about them all seems to hang a scent of blood. So I think that's a really nice way of um, of kind of getting a feel for what the area would have been like and smelled
2: like and how gross it would have been. And so all the wealthy moved out of Bermondsey and it was just filled with all the all the leather workers um, so there was usually I think they averaged five to a room or have read that somewhere
1: smelling like that
2: smelling like that yeah. um, so we, we we show a few different things that show some of the aid that the people got there um the Arthur's Mission on Snowfield um, and the Guinness, um, the Guinness Trust buildings as well and then we go and there are still quite a few signs in Bermondsey that show the leather industry was there, there's some stones that for the leather exchange that still show the leather making process on them there's a horse um, up from a farrier's um, that's now a garage, but it was. It shows that that's where the horses were to go when they were coming into London after their travel to get their shoes mended, because they were made. The shoes were made of leather as well, so the farriers had a roaring trade there too. And then we we sort of end the tour. We kind of recognise it's miserable, so we end <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> Not the tour. <laughs> the tour is quite...
1: The tour is miserable. The
2: tour's quite miserable, isn't it? It's quite a grim history. Mm. So, we end on Bermondsey Street, which is my fav- one of my favourite streets because it's this buzzing street of independence and mm. it might sound cheesy, but I kind of think that, you know, all this struggling to survive of all these different people is left with a uh, air of... Uh, Entrepreneurial spirit. Entrepreneurial spirit that you know it's just this whole whole row of all these different shops where you know two people are walking their dogs together and they decided to set up a, a shop with dog collars and little dog mm-hmm. coats and you know every shop or most of the shops they have just opened to franco mancas on there but you know most shops are these ultra ultra entrepreneurial delights and it makes you think that there's there's hope and also reminds you about just
3: how the area is becoming gentrified as well. I mean, the old industrial buildings are now chic apartments and shared working spaces and things so No,
1: no more sense of blood.
3: No, exactly, far from it. So in you know kind of twentieth century it just rapidly became something quite different and there was an antiques market that um that moved there and that was part of the reason for the attracting a wealthier crowd and it's all just part of the area's history but like Vanessa says it's this kind of charming entrepreneurial spirit struggle to survive that is still there
1: that sounds like a natural stop to me but not before (laughs) we've mentioned what you've got coming up I think I'm going to take massive issue with one of the things you've got coming up but let's see
2: well, the power power women.
1: Week. Power women? No. Why would I have a? Why would I object to power women? What are power women?
2: So, so we're running a, a week of guided running tours for London's Power Women Week to celebrate all the women who have shaped London, London's history. There are so many that we're going to pick eight or nine along an eight-kilometer route and celebrate them. All played
1: badly by your mother.
2: No, m- no, my mother won't be there. Okay. Uh, but my father. Oh no. <laughs> um. No, this is just a guided tour, so no actions, I'm afraid, on that one. Um, But we've got a power walking group going every day, so even if running isn't your thing, I still can't run after the broken leg, so I'll definitely be there heading up the power walking team and loving it. It'll be really fun. And then there'll be running groups as well. And we're meeting at the Boudicca statue every day from the 5th and the 9th of June for that at different times. And then after that, we've got our Murder Mystery Run, which is a 5K team challenge where... Where's it? Oh, we're killing off Henry VIII's lover, Elizabeth Bloud, in a It running challenge. So that's on July the 14th, and you can get tickets to
3: any of those events on our website, com. Oh, that
1: was good. Uh, I, I thought we were going to get into a Jack the Ripper fight.
3: Oh, no, 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 that was a, our last event that we ran.
1: Right, OK. You've dodged a bullet that was heading your way.
3: (laughs) We should probably say that um, if we've got anything historically wrong in this interview, then um, we always welcome corrections and input um, suggestions and questions. There's an interpretation and uh, different sides of stories. One of the really great things about doing the tours is that we're always uh, getting input from our customers. Some people have got their own stories of London and, and what it used to be like even when they were a child and I just wanted to mention as well that if you listeners know that um, we've said something wrong or got something a bit inaccurate then please do get in touch uh, we've got a, a contact us page on the website so we would love to hear from you if you have any comments or suggestions
1: Well I think that's a good place to leave things you know we haven't said a thing about the, some of the most impressive architecture in the world that we're standing underneath right now and uh, we could do but that's the joy of London is that we can come back and do that another day What a privilege. Uh, For now, though, Amy Coates, Vanessa Kane, thanks very much.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: And that's all for this week. Thanks for this week to Vanessa Kane and Amy Coates. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe.